Today's show is brought to you in partnership with GiveSum. GiveSum is a platform that got on my radar last year. I've been watching with anticipation as they built out their solution. What they have built is brilliant. It's an online platform that allows companies who are already giving to seamlessly engage their employees in the experience by allowing them to choose the causes that matter most to them and choosing where the funds are donated. As my listeners know, I believe that corporate giving needs to be a table stakes when it comes to how we as leaders run our companies. And I also know that sometimes those donations and acts of support don't always connect to the people on our teams. GiveSum solves that problem by creating a bridge where you as a leader can now allow your team to select the causes and charities that matter most to them, and then, through the platform itself, receive direct feedback on the impact of those funds. Gone is the need for the once-a-year town hall or a company-wide email to share what causes the org supported last year. GiveSum allows your team to pick the charities and get direct feedback on the impact the dollars had. One of the best parts, GiveSum does not take a percentage of the donation. 100% of the dollars donated go directly to the charity and to the people who need it the most. GiveSum works with your company, and for a set fee, they administer the entire process. If you're already giving, which statistically speaking, you most likely are, visit GiveSum.com and find out how you can get your entire company involved in making a difference for the people who need it most. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to my guest this morning, Mr. Mark Raffin. How are you doing, buddy? Mm. I am awesome, man. How are you? I am fantastic, man. I'm just creeping on your LinkedIn. I just saw you have 25,000 followers, man. That's impressive. I just had follower envy right there. As yeah, I they're saw all that. under duress. They're all, yeah. Yeah, dude, they're all, all by gunpoint. <laughs> they've all been waterboarded into it. They've yeah. all been waterboarded into it, which I absolutely love. That's a negotiation right? strategy I like to call do it or else. <laughs> <laughs> Do it or your family dies. <laughs> well, I have a joke. That's the isn't that the reason for modern management? Because back in the old days, we could just threaten your family and you'd work the land. <laughs> but now we've got to persuade. We've got to influence. We've got to uh, lead, direct, support. We've got to negotiate. You were head of training for negotiations and ninja. So let's jump in the. Uh, I'm jumping in the pitch elevator with a ninja. What could be more fun on a Friday morning? Tell us about what negotiations ninja is all about. What you do, the problem you solve in the world, and what gets you out of bed in the morning. Negotiations Ninja is a training, advisory, and content company. What we do is train people how to negotiate, resolve conflict, and communicate better, specifically within the B2B world. So if you're a B2B business and you're a leader or an employee within that business, we probably have a course to teach you how to communicate better. I love it. Question. Uh, Resolve conflict. Is every negotiation... A resolving conflict or is that its own bucket was like hey you and i are going to do a deal do we treat that like resolving a conflict i'm, I'm just mashing a few words together because i do believe words, Not, ma- words matter yes, it depends on who you ask like if you okay. ask like a hostage negotiation expert they would say that every negotiation is a conflict because they start the negotiation with conflict okay. right there is a Got conflict it. we have to resolve you're holding 10 hostages there's a conflict here i got to get them out but in the business world, it doesn't have to be that way. Sometimes it is that way, and sometimes we have to resolve conflict within negotiations, mm. but it doesn't have to be that way. How much does culture, nuance, dynamic of the organization you're engaging with of the winner-take-all and never split the difference and I'm going to win and I'm going to beat you in this negotiation, those are conflict words to me. And I think can be what sometimes intimidates a lot of people like, oh, geez, negotiation is scary versus the fact that it can mean a lot of different things. Negotiation, I think, 
the word comes with a lot of baggage. Yeah, yeah. So depending on how you're approaching negotiation and how you viewed negotiation in the past and what organizations you've been a part of will flavor how you think about negotiation and also how you grew up because a lot of people don't deal with conflict well. Yeah. They don't deal with negotiation well. And that's not a fault of their own most of the time. That's a fault of generally how they've been raised, the environment they've been in. And for my, my wife, for example, is a conflict avoider. And I come from a family that is, you know, we are conflict prone. Like if we're going to get into it, we're going to get into it. <laughs> And that's and that's that, we like, have a bias towards versus a bias away. <laughs> right, exactly. Two completely separate worlds. And so my adult life has been about how do I tame that whereas her adult life has been about how do I accentuate that. And so we've both been coming to the point of like, okay, there's a maturity here that we've had to go through, and there's a process that we've had to go through to get better at these things. But something that you said was really interesting there of, you know, never split the difference, win-lose type negotiations. Uh, I hold a, a lot of fairly controversial viewpoints Lovely. on negotiation that a lot of people don't necessarily hold. And whenever I say those out loud, a lot of people are like, what the heck? This guy's insane. But it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because a lot of people think about negotiation as like the stereotypical, right? The, if you've ever heard about negotiation, you've probably heard the term win-win. And so when I hear that term, my, the hair on my back shrivels up. And I <laughs> That is a very visceral image you're painting. How's for that us? for a graphic uh, yeah, image? It is. Okay. Right. But but I start to like I want to make it as graphic as humanly possible for everyone, right? So I it just it's it really irks me because that term doesn't mean anything to me. It it doesn't make sense. And when I say that a lot of people are like, Well what what about it doesn't make sense? That it doesn't make sense that it doesn't make sense to you. But win-win isn't a thing, right? Like it's you, – you can't evenly divide a deal. It's, it's not possible. If you've been in the business world for a while and you're a business person or even a politician, you know that a deal can't be divided evenly. It's just not even possible, right? And then there are those people that would say, well, that's not win-win means. Win-win means that both parties feel as though they've won in the negotiation. Wait, hang on. That actually makes less sense. So hang, my job now is to emotionally manipulate you to make you feel like you've gotten a win. Is that what win-win is? So everyone has uses this term and they throw it around like it's nothing. And really, that's what it's become. It's mm -hmm. become this nothing term that doesn't mean anything. Let me, let me give you an example. So if you believe in win-win, you believe that a deal could be fair. But what is fair really? Fair is based on what my perception of what fair is. But it's also based on what your perception of what fair is. And it's also based on what uh, someone else's perception of what fair is. And so naturally, the term fair means subjective, right? It is subjective. 
So if if it's, the term is subjective, then can there ever objectively be a win-win? Mm. I don't think so. Like it 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 doesn't make sense. And even even if we knew, and this is gonna maybe rattle a few cages, but even if we believed in the concept of fair, we would both have to be completely transparent with each other so that we both knew exactly the value that you were getting, that I was getting, that I was bringing to the table, that you were bringing to the table, and so that we could determine what fair actually is. Are you going to ever be 100% transparent in a negotiation with the counterparty? I don't think so. Further to that, even if we were going to be 100% transparent with each other, do you trust me enough not to use that information against you? Again, probably not. What doesn't make sense, man. What, what's your alternative? And, I, and I'm saying as an alternative, or what's your, in replace of win-win, what would you say? Yeah, your job in a negotiation is to achieve the objectives that you set out at the beginning of that negotiation. So we call it goal-based or success-based negotiation. Okay. So I set goals at the beginning of the negotiation for what I want to achieve. If I achieve that within a range of acceptable outcomes, hooray, fantastic, congratulations, I am successful in the negotiation. This whole idea of win-win puts you in a position of making it incumbent upon you to create a win for the counterparty. That's not my job. That's your oh, job. Oh, that's an interesting... I really like that. That's almost like saying you can make someone else happy. <laughs> right. Argument would say you can't. You might set some criteria right. or set an environment, but it's really up to them at the end of the day. I do appreciate yeah, and that. If, and if it becomes incumbent upon me to create a win for you, and I'm negotiating with someone that doesn't believe in win-win, but I believe in win-win... Then all that eat, other person has to say <laughs> is, well, I don't think this is fair. And, well, what do you mean it's not fair? I think it's fair. Well, it's not fair. I, I need to get more out of this. And now what? Right? So the idea just doesn't land. I, I just don't think it makes sense. Do you find a lot of people coming into... I'm curious because there's what we say and then there's what we believe and then there's what we do and uh, all those all those nuances. When people say win-win... In your experience, people coming into your training programs, do they really think that it's their job to have that other person party feel like they win? Or is that just the being literal nature of the words? Because sooner or later, you're in a room with people that go win-win, and then we start working with them. You're like, okay, well, you don't actually, that's not actually what you might say that because it's quick and it's colorful. I'm a marketer. Win-win is easy to say, right? And so, it's, and we pick these things up. Yeah. I mean, as you know, as a marketer, and I, I feel like I can speak with this with confidence, having <laughs> run an agency for a while, which was a horrific experience, and I don't recommend for anyone. It is a really hard business to run. You know, as a marketer, scope creep is a real thing. And at the beginning of the discussion, we think we've gotten a deal. But then throughout the relationship, <laughs> there's all this scope creep and price creep that happens. And what inevitably ends up happening is that the deal no longer becomes profitable and now we're not in that state where i've felt good about the negotiation be very cautious of people who have been in the negotiation world for a really long time who say let's get a win-win 
because those people are most likely out to slit your throat. <laughs> it's like when someone says, we're not in it for the money. I'm like, so you're 100% in it for the money. Just <laughs> yeah, <told me>. Exactly. <laughs> or else 100%. you wouldn't even have brought that up. <laughs> exactly. Oh, scope creep. That's a whole interesting one. So in the world that, that you're encountering, and you mentioned earlier, I think offline we were chatting, a lot of your clients are coming, are coming out of the US. What areas right. of business are you working with large B2B SaaS? Are you working with large industrial? Like who, who do you see the most of? And let's talk about what you're seeing in those individual sectors. And if it's a wide variety, even better. Mm. Yeah. Three major segments, um, large enterprise tech and SaaS, okay. mm. large banks and large industrial and commodity. So okay. those are the three main areas. Tech is getting absolutely hammered right now. <laughs> if you're a salesperson in SaaS, you are getting wrecked right now and it is really hard if you're in banking it's let's see where we go because everything that we do is based on the fed's decisions right so everyone's like "Eh, i'm not really sure which way this is going to go throughout the year so it's kind of see as you go if you're in commodities industrial you're stable it's going okay right now okay so different levels of problem different levels of pain so are you seeing a rise in the so Things get tight, things get uncomfortable. Oftentimes, marketing budgets get cut. Things get tight, things get uncomfortable. Do training budgets for negotiation improve? It depends on the industry, and it depends on how prevalent the problem is. And it depends on who's running the department. (laughs) So what you're saying is it depends. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll give you an example. On the sales side, if you've got a progressive thinking sales leader, right, like a a VP or CRO that is thinking, okay, we need to retain value as much as we can, right? It's it's gone from the idea of building value to just retaining. I need to retain value as much as humanly possible. How do I do that? There's a number of different mechanisms to do that. One of those mechanisms is through negotiating better deals. So previously, my job as a sales leader in the past has been about user acquisition and growth and getting seats. Now, my job as a sales leader is about maximizing profitability of my existing deals at renewal time and also the new deals that we do bring on to maximize profitability and reduce risk for those. And it it all goes through market cycles, right? So when we're in a massive growth phase, it's about growth. We're We're in a bit of a contraction phase like we're in right now, then now we have to focus on different things. Negotiation helps with both things. The goals just change. You made the comment, you, you, you threw in the CRO, Chief Revenue Officer versus, and you didn't say it versus, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick these, VP of Marketing, VP of Sales, Director of Sales, Director of Marketing. And I love what you said about, or my interpretation is those different areas of concern about revenue retention and about saving what we have versus trying to get net new. Are you also seeing that conversation go across a broader suite of the organization because of the CRO thinking and that we're all responsible for revenue mindset versus just, oh no, we're only doing sales. If you lose the client after, that's accounts, that's retention, that's the that's the farmers, we're the hunters. Is that merging yeah. and are those lanes shifting as everybody I, I becomes that, revenue responsible? That maturity in a lot of organizations to have a CRO position is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Like to manage someone who manages 
revenue overall for the organization, however that revenue is generated, is really important because the disconnect between marketing and sales and account management and project management gets so siloed in other industries that as soon as you have that overarching leadership position, then everyone starts working better together because it's not a turf war anymore. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And are you, in your experience, because I know the CRO role is a little bit lean in Canada, but a lot more prevalent in the US. Are yeah. you seeing organizations reaping the benefit of that overarching kind of viewpoint? I would say they're a lot more stable than their competitors. Oh, okay. That's, well, and in a, in, a, in a contractual time, I'll take stable all day long, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm working on a team and I get a call from my client that mm-hmm. we need to read, we need to relook at our agreement. We like, basically we're trying to get a deal. Is it procure? Who calls them? Like who's on the who's on the side of the table that's maybe triggering that negotiation? Yeah, it depends say? on the size of the organization. So, okay. I mean, if you're dealing with a large enterprise company, it's a procurement team, okay. right? So the person, the category manager. So I'll, I'll run through a few titles. If you're a salesperson right now and you're listening to this and you're in an enterprise role, you need to know how the other side is built. So. When you're looking at the procurement side, if you're getting, if you're coming up to renewal time, there is most likely a renewal person responsible for that renewal. They may report into a category manager who reports into a category leader, and those categories are based on spend buckets. So in the same way that your verticals are built out in sales, the procurement team looks at buckets of spend. And so typically, if you're in SaaS, you're dealing with someone who specifically works in software category or in the tech category. If you're in chemicals, then you've got someone working in the chemicals category. If you're in, if you sell machinery, you work with someone who works within maybe a, a capital equipment category. So you're dealing with someone who specifically negotiates within that category. And then when you get the call from that person and they say, hey, we need to look at that deal, the first thing that you do is hold your breath, obviously, because you're afraid of what's going to happen next. The next thing you do is exhale because it hasn't happened yet and chill out. So <laughs> let's let's think about what your approach is going to be before that call actually happens. Obviously, that person is going to try and reduce cost and reduce risk. That is their job, right? And procurement people think about value differently than salespeople, and the words they use are different as well. So a salesperson, when they sell into an account and they sell to a business user, they sell the idea of value, right? So here's what you're getting, but here's the value that it generates for your organization, which far exceeds the price that I'm charging you, etc. Procurement person thinks of value, but they call it total cost of ownership. So they think about it from the perspective of like, okay, what is this costing me as an organization and how can I drive down the overall cost of acquiring and procuring your services or your product? One of the levers is the price of that product. The other levers are, can I improve your efficiency? Can I improve your effectiveness? Can I reduce the risk? Can I increase the payment terms? All of those things help me to reduce the total cost of ownership of the thing that I am acquiring. And so naturally, because we think about procurement people think about that value differently, when a salesperson talks to a procurement person, the the 
biggest disconnect that happens is they talk to them like they were talking to the business user of the product that they're selling instead of as a procurement person. And so you've got a natural communication disconnect and then everything kind of falls apart. Back to having a plan and back to understanding what your what the other side actually cares about or understand how they feel to the world. So literally you're walking into that conversation having potentially two different conversations at the same time, Correct. both not realizing why the other isn't understanding the other. <laughs> That's right. Which can start to feel like conflict pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, especially especially when you think you're trying to achieve different goals. Mm. When in fact, actually, you're trying to achieve the same goal, you're just thinking about it differently. Because at the end of the day, a procurement person's customer is the people that they represent which as a salesperson are the people that you sell to. So you have the same customer. (laughs) My job as a procurement person is just different in how I try and achieve value than your job as a salesperson. Ultimately, we are both trying to ensure that our customer gets best value. Now we just have to have a discussion about what does that mean And how am I going to help provide that to you? And how do I ensure that I'm getting something that I want to get out of the negotiation? Because if I'm not getting something I want, then I shouldn't even be having this conversation. Really love the paradigm shift of we both have the same customer being the business unit, the people that are actually using the service product or whatever the case may be. Right. In your training... I think I'm signing up. I'm being very broad sweeping here, of course. I think I'm signing up to learn how to negotiate. But what I'm really hearing is like, let's start by understanding who we're even talking to on the other side and what matters to them. How important is that? Seems obvious. But how often is that overlooked of not really understanding who's on the other side of the table and what they actually care about? Because to me, that just destroys you before you even get in the room. Mm. I think there's two things to think about here. I think I'm going to answer your question with a roundabout answer. So the question was, how important is it to understand the, the counterparty? I think what's more important than that is, do I even know what I want in the okay. negotiation? Okay. So first, anyone listening to this, I want you to think about what it is you want out of the negotiation. Because most people go into a negotiation responding to a request or responding to a proposal and reacting to that instead of first planning for what do I want to get out of the negotiation. Now, for salespeople, this is a bit of a flip, right? Because you're trained to think first about the customer. And I want you to do that. I'm not saying don't do that, by the way. But what I am saying is don't do that at the cost of first understanding what you want to achieve. Think about that first. Then think about, and now I'm going to answer your question, how important is it to understand the counterparty? Yes, and there are three things that I want you to understand the counter, about the counterparty. And it's at the corporate, the regional, and the individual level. So if you're dealing in enterprise sales, the corporate culture is really important to understand how they operate, their financials, everything like that. And also, you need to think about how that is different to and similar to the regional culture of the office that you are negotiating with. Because you may not necessarily be negotiating with the same cultural entity as the corporate office. 
and most people miss this, right? So if I'm if I'm dealing with a large chemical company that has corporate headquarters in Calgary, for example, but multiple regional offices and facilities throughout North America, Europe, Australasia, who am I working with at the regional level and how does that relate to the corporate level? And then at the individual level, how does that person think about it within the context of their role and what their incentives are within that role? And that's really important. Now, I'm asking people to do a lot of research here. I get that. So a lot of people are thinking about this conversation and probably getting slight panic attacks. It doesn't have to be super complicated. I just want you to think of it in three different levels. If you don't have three levels, just start at the individual level. Who am I working with? What do they do? What are their incentives? What do they want to get out of this? Potentially, right? We're making some assumptions, but you do have to make some assumptions about what they want to get out of this. And then when you're in the conversation, you can verify whether you're assumptions are correct. And the most important thing out of that is what are the incentives of the person that I'm negotiating with and what are the incentives of the person that that person is representing? Because it may not necessarily be the same. A procurement person, for example, would love you to believe that they have decision-making authority. (laughs) The reality is they have effectively zero decision-making authority. They, have, they may have strong influence over the decision, but very like 0.01% of the time do they actually have decision-making authority. That's awesome. I appreciate your context of like, hey, this sounds intimidating. It's a lot of research. I was, I was in a very collaborative win-win style negotiation. I'll say that just to be annoying. But I was in a room and I just asked some of these questions. I, all of a sudden, I got the regional VP for, for, for Canada who was leading the project. And this was a large EPC company with their you know, headquarters out of Scotland, 18,000 employees, I think, globally. And we very quickly got to, no, we've been charged with this. This is what we're deciding. This is what we're doing. This is what head office cares about. And just through a series of very simple questions, they just laid it all out for us. And again, assuming that it's correct, and we'll find out as, as we work together. But I didn't, I knew who they were, and I knew their scope and I knew their scale and very quickly, and luckily I had a very senior person in the room who was the head of Canada. So he laid it out for me, almost knowing what I was, he wanted me to know where the ground rules were before we even started so we could be successful at working together. And I really appreciate that. Great. And it didn't take hours of research. I just had this conversation on Tuesday or Wednesday. So it was very fresh in my mind in relation to our conversation. I knew what was going on, but I had no idea the details. And he vol- and he volunteered them very, very, very quickly in a in a yeah. And as long as you ask in a non-threatening Completely. way, Completely. <laughs> and ask open-ended questions, most of the time, because if you're at the table, they want to work with you, right? I mean, that's let's let's deal with that right away. So we've all got emotional baggage when we come into these types of negotiations. Yeah, you're not <clears throat> if if they didn't want to work with you, I promise you, they wouldn't be having that conversation. <laughs> I promise, because why would they waste their time? The easiest thing to do is to say, you know what, we've decided to go a different direction. That's it. Doesn't doesn't sound as scary when you say it like that. The the, the monster in my head is way bigger than that, Mark. I don't know right, why, exactly. why, 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 why it always is. It, every single freaking time the uh, Hitchcock uh, Hitchcock form of of horror. What you can imagine is way scarier than what I can show you. But that's in the that's actually not in the closet at all. <laughs> yeah, 
What well, was it? Mark Twain that once said, "I've suffered a great many trials, most of which have never occurred." Yes. Right. Like I mean, this the same thing is true. I'm sure I botched that quote. By the no, way, no, I love it. a good buddy of mine. Uh, lately, has got into cold plunging, and he got me into cold plunging, and now I'm loving it. But the real trick about cold plunging is don't die a thousand deaths, but only get into the water once. <laughs> right. Oh my God, it's going to be so cold. Twenty minutes later, nothing's happened yet, folks. But you're still freaking out about the cold water. <laughs> Just get in, and it's over. It's been my recent lesson on that. And he said, "I'm dying a thousand deaths, Tyler." As I run around the house naked for an hour, trying to procrastinate getting in the cold plunge. I'm like, "Thanks for the graphic image, but I do appreciate what you're <laughs> what you're." What you're painting a picture of. And by the way, it's the best thing ever. Once you get in, I'm like, wow, we are weird as humans, are we not? What are you seeing when you're, when you're from a, we'll put on our salesperson hat. How many people are involved? You use the keyword here. They're, they're not the decision maker. They'd like to point through one of the time, but they're absolutely an influencer. And that can yes. be a very powerful. Are you seeing, I think what's the latest Gardner? I love a good stat. 11, 11 people will be in the average, you know, buying group at an enterprise level company. Is that accurate to your experience? Is it more? Is it less? Is it irrelevant or is it helping about that? I start with my goal, but I really need to understand who needs to, who needs what on the other side? Yes, but yes, but. I'm sensing a theme here, Mark. <laughs> there, yes, there are a large number of people, but there's, there's a difference between major and minor influencers, right? Okay. And as the great Jim Rohn said, don't spend major time doing minor things. And the truth of the matter is, why would I spend major time with minor influencers? So my goal is to identify, okay, we've got 10 plus people. Let's just say, you know, we've got someone from risk. We've got someone from legal. We've got someone from accounting, procurement, blah, 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 right? The list goes on and on and on and on. And all of these people touch the negotiation at some point in time, sure, even if it's just for approval processes. The goal here is to identify who the major influencers are versus the minor influencers. And so the three big ones right away at the enterprise level are going to be the procurement team, the legal team, and depending on if you're a SaaS salesperson, most likely someone in the risk department or in the data department to determine a security risk, right? And then obviously the business user, but I'm not counting them in that total overall 10 or 11. So those are the three major influencers. Your job is to curate the conversation for each of those three groups. The minor influencers like accounting and like um, maybe someone in insurance and someone else, like it's uh, after that, it starts to get dicey. Like accounting really doesn't give a shit, right? Like they only care about whether or not there's budget control. Like, does this fit within the budget? Okay, cool. No problem. The The other three parties have significantly more influence. You said something, I think, really powerful, and we'll touch on the difference between a small to medium-sized sale process versus more enterprise. You go, that 10 to 11, that actually doesn't even include the user, which I thought was really interesting and powerful, where you're dealing on a small to medium size very often someone who's going to be benefiting in some way from the solution you're providing is in that room and often is the person who has check writing authority, if you want to just say it that way. Do you find that uh, like just simple, the dynamics of large enterprise selling versus small to medium size? Yeah, that's the biggest thing that most people don't understand is that you you have two, three, four people that you're going to be negotiating with, right? You're going to have a legal discussion. You're going to have a risk discussion. You're going to have a procurement discussion and you're going to have a a user discussion. The user discussion always happens first. That's how you get in the door. But then the other people 
have to at some point in order to ensure that the t- the deal is of good value for the organization yeah. have influence over that right because the user is just going to say i need the thing that's their primary need i need the thing i want the service i want to solve this problem they are going to don't care about is. the rest i don't care about yeah, cost i don't, I don't, I don't care, care about cost I don't care about risk. I just want to solve the problem. And that's their job. And then you get procurement stepping in and go, okay, going, okay, well, I don't care about the thing. As long as my customer is happy, that's cool. I care about the cost and a little bit about the risk. And then you go to legal and legal says, okay, I actually don't care about any of that stuff. I care about reducing overall exposure for the business and ensuring that we're not putting ourselves into a difficult situation. And then data and security. Security steps in and says, well, hang on, what data are you touching? I actually don't care about the deal at all. All I care about is what data you're touching and how much of it I need to give to you and what Mm -hmm. kind of security protocols are in place. And if you speak to each of those the same way that you speak to the business user, deal's over. But if you speak to them about what each of them care about and how you can help them with those things, then it becomes a much easier process. I really appreciate the black and white brass tacks of your comments because as a marketer, so often you don't get into that level, but yet that is exactly what slows down your enterprise client from making sales because you focus on the message, you focus on the user. Right. 99% of the time as a market. Which is right? what you should do, but you yeah. just don't do it at the cost of forgetting about the others. And that's, I, I think that's, and even just respecting that it's there <laughs> as well as, you know, are we, are we marketing to market or are we marketing to actually end up selling at the end of the day? If, if, yeah. I would argue that, that the latter, <laughs> ultimately. What I recommend for most enterprise salespeople is to say, yeah, you, you're going to, obviously your first contact is always with the user because that's where the sale is generated, right? And also make sure that it, when you're, when the, when the prospect says, yeah, I think this is something we want to do, at that point, you say, wonderful, there's most likely a person from legal, a person from procurement, a person from security that needs to get involved in this conversation. So before you and I go far, too far too down, far, too far. Mm-hmm. then we, we do need to include these people at some point because what I don't want to have happen is for you and I to get to the end of the deal. We've negotiated with, with each other. I've conceded value to you. I've given you a bunch of stuff and we've made a deal that is perfect for you. And then procurement comes in and says, now I want a discount. But I've already provided all the value. Yeah. And so now we're having a, a like a really difficult conversation. Instead, let's do this. Let's bring them in earlier so that we can take them along the journey with us so that we can show them the value that we're creating so that they can use that to show how much value they've generated in the process. This all sounds like it takes a lot of time. Yeah, enterprise selling takes a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> Are things taking longer? And I go, I don't know what we're comparing to, but there seems like there's more variables on the table than ever before. Things are taking longer now because businesses are tight with cash. Depend, yeah. and this is this is a market cycle. Yeah, thing, back to your right. So comment. your your sales cycle used to be four months. Now it's eight months. Right. So it depends on what market cycle you're in. It depends on which commodity or or I should say which industry you're selling into. Yep. And those controls tighten when money becomes more scarce and more costly. 
And we are now in a situation where money is becoming more scarce and more costly. The controls are tightening, which means the sales cycle and the deal cycle becomes longer. And so if you are applying the sales cycle you had from 10 months ago to today, you are always going to be out of whack. So I would say a lot of sales leaders, CROs, VPs of sales, need to readjust their thinking because it's just a different cycle that we're in, a different part of the cycle, I should say. Well, and how damaging is it setting those very unreal expectations on your team? <laughs> yeah, and, culture, and by culture, the way, we do killers. because culture you've killers. got you've got you know a board that says, "How come you're not closing as many deals as quickly as you were ten months ago? This is unacceptable." And you're like, "Well, because the market, dude, like." Don't be dumb, right? You're in a board position for a reason. Don't use these words, by the way. I was like, don't people. call your board dude. I just like, don't, I don't think yeah, that's going to call. I don't use, think it's going to. Don't use these words. Yo, bro, chill listen. out, bro. <laughs> yes, listen, dude. <laughs> just chill. And that's when I got terminated. <laughs> and that's when I unfortunately but, had to exit the organization. But Mark Raffin, the negotiations ninja, told me to say it this way. <laughs> yeah. There's ways to obviously curate the conversation. But this is the conversation you need to have, right? It's a difficult conversation, but if you're getting that pressure from you know, the CEO, you're getting that pressure from the board to say, how come? Then you do need to have a rational conversation with them and say, here are the facts. This is where we are. This is the cost of money. This is how budgets are being changed. This is how things are... Because here's what happens on the customer side of the conversation. The CFO literally steps into an office with all of the projects and all of the people and says, that ain't happening anymore. Everything's on hold. And then everyone gets upset and then everything gets reprioritized, and then the important stuff gets done. Yeah. And I have been in offices as a procurement person where a CFO has literally stepped into a room and said, I don't give a shit what your contracts say. You are calling all of these suppliers in the next week and getting a 20% discount. Savvy? Great have a good day, and then walks out. That's just the reality of what's going on on the other side of the table. So if we can't have a, a reasonable conversation at a sales level on our side, then we're going to be constantly disappointed. Well, in April, May 2020 is when every single person in a vendor role got that phone call. <laughs> right. Like We all yeah. had them. We, I think we had a 40% cut on one of our major clients. And we're slowly working our way back there right now, but that was three years ago, as we, as, as we all know, right? Right. But man, does that force you to sharpen up your own business real quick? Or, or, oh, yeah. or, or, or you, you learn or you to get efficient real fast. You don't get to keep playing the game then. You get, to, you, get, you get taken off the board if you don't. Yeah. I like those reset moments because I've made it through them, but then, man, do they They're demand. Painful. They are, and they demand, they demand some, they demand some I was once in a role where, this was early on in my career, I was once in a role where the company I was working for was going through financial difficulty, we're about to lose borrower status at one of the major banks as a credible borrower. And my job was to call some of our suppliers. In fact, it was separated between a few different procurement people. My job was to call suppliers and say, <clears throat> excuse me, knock, knock. We are not paying our bill. Not we're delaying, not 
can we put it on hold? Not can we extend payment terms? Just this bill that you sent is not getting paid. And then the negotiation was a, a hostage negotiation, essentially, yeah. right? Because the salesperson now has to say, hey, that's my money. Give me my money. And we say, no, thank you. Uh, we won't be doing that. And then they say, we'll sue you. And we say, here's the number for the law firm that represents us. Good luck. Get have a good day. Get in line. Mm -hmm. Get in line. And that is a shitty conversation to have. How did that? How did that play out? I actually worked out okay. <laughs> for who? For the organization that I was working <laughs> yeah, for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, like I'm on the vendor side more than I'm on that side, and uh, yeah, no, I, that's, I feel a, that's a for hard that. conversation. God damn, man! Seriously, why yeah. you son of a bitch? I thought I thought we were friends. Nothing yeah. to do with it at that point. Sorry, don't man, worry. I know it's we're not personal. It's just business, as someone says. Yeah. As you get effed in that in that in that situation. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it is. And you're like, that was painful. I thought we were friends. Yeah. Like, well, I guess not anymore. Yeah. Don't take it personal. Sorry. It's, only, it's only business. As they've just as. So as you taking me for golf next week? <laughs> yeah. Is your is your expense account still functional? Did they turn that off yet? Oh uh, man. Hey, why ninja? Uh, because ninjas are two reasons. Number one, well, three reasons. I like alliteration. So negotiations ninja just it does. sounds great. It does. Uh, martial arts and negotiation are very similar in a lot of ways. Negotiation is a practice in much the same way that martial arts is a practice. There is no end state of perfection. Hmm. There is always something to learn. And even the things that you've already learned, when you look at it a different way, change the way that you do that thing. The same is true for martial arts. You could have been doing martial arts for 30 years, and then you hear someone say something about a move that you 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 could almost do in your sleep that makes something twick or, or just twitch in your head and go off and you go, Oh, I get it now. Yeah. totally. Great and example. then the third reason is ninjas operate in the shadows. You never know what they're going to do. And that's the way I like to approach negotiations. And they are also assassins, but I don't think you're pulling on that thread exactly. <laughs> uh, maybe a little bit. <laughs> I love it. There is, there is a little bit of a, negotiations has got a little bit of a it's got some heat on it because we've all watched hollywood we've all seen it we've all seen it portrayed we all have an image of it in our mind which could be good positive scary fun, yeah like whatever. And when i by the way when i started the organization i had like a classic consulting type na type name like you know mccullough and co or whatever and it was boring and nonsense and i was like i'm not going to win any hearts and minds with this so Stratton, that's why I decided Stratton, to change Stratton, it. Stratton Oakmont. <laughs> Stratton Oakmont. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we need to sound like we've been around for a really was, long time. Totally. I had someone tell me their name the other day, and they justified it that way. And immediately, I'm just like, are you, just, are you pulling a Wolf of Wall Street move here? Like, what's actually happening right now? <laughs> do, yeah. do, do you even know the, the cultural reference you just made? Like, yeah, Oak Tree Investments. It sounded solid. I'm like, what? really? Anyways, I love it. I love it. Um, martial arts is such a powerful... But there's a practice to it. If there's something missing in our world around 
being a good, effective negotiator? Is it the practice piece? Is it the training? Is it the, I'm just good at it because I woke up, I'm a guy. Of course I can drive. I've never taken a driving course. Of course I can work yeah. out. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting this mainly on males, but I know a lot of males that are like, no, I'm an excellent driver. Have you ever taken a course? No, no, I'm just amazing at it. I'm like, really? I would yeah. beg to differ, my friend. <laughs> Is nego- does negotiation fall into that s- a similar category? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's, negotiation gets viewed as an activity, right? Mm. It's something that we do from time to time. It's not something that has to be practiced in order for that thing that we do from time to time to be good. To not suck. (laughs) Right. And so people that practice martial arts, they don't fight in real life, right? Like, I mean, nine nine times out of 10, you will never find someone who has practiced martial arts for a really long time in a physical altercation. However... If that physical altercation were to happen, then are they going to be more effective than the person who hasn't had training? Of course. Who's watched a lot of ninja movies from the 80s. Right, yeah, <laughs> who thinks they're Bruce Lee, but is actually, you know, Not someone Lee. like me who sits on the couch. <laughs> so let's get real about things right now. If we view it in that same lens then negotiation is like that. Mm. It happens from time, and for the vast majority that are listening to this podcast, you may not necessarily take part in multiple multi-million dollar negotiations over and over and over and over again, which is what my clients do. However, you may take part in a multi-six, seven, eight-figure negotiation sometimes. And when that happens sometimes, you're going to be facing someone that does it all the time. So would you rather be in a position to maximize value or are you just going to wing it and see what happens? Because I promise you, you're going to leave that negotiation, even if you wing it, feeling phenomenal if the other negotiator is good. Because they're going to go, Tyler, wow. We don't give this deal to anyone. You did. You did phenomenal. You were great. I really appreciate doing business with you, man. Please don't tell anyone. Please don't tell anyone the deal that you got. And you're going to walk away going, wow, I I did awesome. This was great. Blah, blah, blah. You got worked. You got worked in that negotiation. So it's a practice. It's something that you have to do over and over again. But Mark, it felt like a (laughs) win-win. Yeah, of course it did. Uh, if I just have to make you feel like you've won, then that's easy for me. As he says with a glint in his eye from this audio-only podcast. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been running the business? Six years. Fantastic. And yeah. nothing but, I know you're on a growth path. I know things are rocking right now. And you sound like you, sound like you love it more than the first time we met many years ago when you told me it and you loved it then. <laughs> yeah, well, I do love it, man. I, I Negotiation... And communication in general, I think, especially with the advances of technology, is something that is a dying commodity. People would rather default to a text-based negotiation or a text-based conversation than a real conversation with actual humans. And that makes me really sad because the data is clear that the vast majority of communication is not what you say, but how you say it. 
And so, I mean, how many people listening, uh, for those listening right now, I want you to picture something in your head. How many text messages have you received where you looked at a text message and thought immediately, what a dick? And then you speak to that person later and you say, hey, what the heck with that text message? And they say, well, hang on. That's not the way that I wanted the message to be interpreted. And then you realize, oh, right. That's because text does not convey context. And so we default to these things that we think are going to be faster or easier. We're going to expedite the process in some sort of capacity. But really what ends up happening is it takes longer. There's more misunderstanding. There's less context provided and less value generated. And that for me as someone who practices communication for a living is really sad. And I know that there is no way for me to fight against this overarching barrage, this tidal wave of text-based communication. But what I can do is speak to people that are listening right now and say, hey, if you're like me and you've noticed these things, don't do that anymore. Right? Improve your communication. It doesn't have to be with us. Just pick up a book. Listen to a podcast. Improve your public speaking. It just little things that you can do to effectively communicate better as things move as a population more in the other direction you are now creating a competitive advantage for yourself by moving the opposite way mic drop moment right there <laughs> i could not agree with you more and uh, just give me a second because i need to type in what you say into chat gpt so i can get an out of <laughs> I love it. Um, and if it feels a little bit awkward, that's probably because it's worth it. Lean in, lean into yeah. it, right? Lean, lean into it. And I love, you know, the name Negotiation Ninja. It sounds great. But I really love the underpinning. of It's about sound communication skills in all the different places that that shows up. And I love it. Even from a marketing, I, I, Negotiations Ninja catches it and I get it. I know what it's about. But really what I'm hearing is the value of that capacity for interpersonal communication in an effective way for all parties involved. And that's not saying win-win. I, I really love your position on, 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 on that and uh, how clear and articulate you are. Mark, that was a fantastic episode. I love what you're doing. I love the energy you bring to it and the passion and the matter of fact notion of like, I've been in these rooms. I had a CFO do that to me. I know what that phone call is. There's a huge amount of scars that really bring credibility to what you do. So I want to give you a high five for that one, my friend. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, dude. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Negotiations Ninja, check it out. The website, the website's awesome. I read through it this morning. It's really clear. I love the services you guys offer. If you do you have a preferred way of people communicating with you? I don't even ask how anymore. What's your preferred? Because there's too many hows back to your text comment. Yeah, how the easiest way is to get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Just right connect on. with me on LinkedIn. And then let me guess, quickly you escalate to an actual phone call where you actually will right. talk to them. Mark will actually talk to you as a real human being, folks, and you will have an excellent time. I can speak to yes, that. Absolutely. I can speak to that. I can give him two thumbs up there. Thanks for coming on, my friend. That was an awesome podcast. I look forward to chatting again soon. Thanks, dude.